the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Hey, welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain, and with me is Brett Roberts. How are you, Brett? I'm excellent. Thank you, Paul. Very good to have you. It's good to be here yet again. Yes, always good to have you on the show. Raging against the machine. Machine learning, mate. Rage against uh, machine learning. Okay, I was trying to work out what I was missing on your T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe you can remind listeners where you fit into this big, wide world of uh, of of tech. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've been in the NZ tech scene for a long, 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 long time. A couple of decades and a bit, probably. Uh, and right now, I'm uh, having a lot of fun uh, working with a government organisation called Callaghan Innovation, um, working in particular with software as a service companies, so helping uh, create more of them, accelerate as many of them as we can, and get um, lots and lots of them to be huge and successful as quickly as possible. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, it's uh, great to have your expertise uh, in there, helping uh, helping <laughs> Callaghan, uh, Brett. As always, lots to chat through. Maybe we can just start with a thank you to our show partners. So uh, thank you to Focus and uh, and Two Degrees, uh, Vodafone, Spark, HP, and Guerrilla Technology. Now, first up in the uh, in the news stories was something that I came across in sort of global media, but it hadn't really crossed my uh, radar, or certainly not recently. Is a company called Humble Bee Bio, New Zealand company uh, that seem to be doing some really, really innovative work, and I'm struggling to describe it, Brett. So I'm wondering if you can, uh, <laughs> if you can have a go at sharing what what they're up to with bees and um, creating this what is understood to be a very remarkable um, bioplastic. So I will apologise in advance to the chairman of the board, Julia Chambers, who's a former colleague of mine um, at Callaghan, uh, if I mangle this, which is highly likely. But my understanding is what they've done is identified a bee that as part of its normal natural life cycle um, creates a bioplastic for lining um, its hive. They've taken the genetic encoding of that within the bee and implanted that into a microbe of some sort. And basically they feed whatever it is that the microbes like to eat, probably, you know, Big Macs and stuff. <laughs> and the microbe effectively excretes or creates this bioplastic, which is a similar process way of um, methodology, I guess, that was used by Lanzatec for using genetically modified microbes to create methanol or ethanol, one or the other. Jet fuel uh, was one of them. And companies like Perfect Day that are using the same sort of technology to um, get microbes to create milk, chemically identical milk without the need for cows. Pretty cool. Uh, and like you, I haven't seen a lot of them, a lot of this company mentioned in New Zealand. I've, I've seen Julia post a few interesting things up on LinkedIn that I've kind of looked at. Um, but they've raised some, you know, some pretty serious money and they've got some pretty amazing people involved. And the product's quite amazing, according to the TechCrunch website, it's hydrophobic, it's waterproof, it's flame retardant, it's stable up to 240 degrees Celsius. That's a pretty amazing thing for a bee to create, and even more amazing if they can scale this out without the need for all those bees. Yeah, well, that was the thing that stood out from uh, from their website, is what an incredible plastic or bioplastic it is with that heat resistance, you know, resistant to, to water, to acids and industrial solvents and so on. Um, so yeah, pretty unique, but I don't know 
how easy it is to go from uh, from that to uh, to scaling it. But with uh, the five million dollars that they've raised um, in convertible notes as part of their um, Series A uh, funding round, would hope there'll be uh, some some very good uh, very good outcomes. So certainly one to uh, one to follow and. I think it's a reminder to me that there is just so much innovation that goes on here in New Zealand, and most of it we we don't uh, we don't see because yep. often they're uh, reasonably small teams. There's not always a lot of media coverage that is there, and so yeah, it's great to great to hear about these uh, these stories. I think the um, the hardest part with this will be negotiating the intellectual property rights with the bees. <laughs> but once they've got that part of it sorted out, I'm, I'm sure it'll be downhill from there. But you're right about the innovation stuff, seriously. I mean, one of the neat things about um, working for Callaghan Innovation is I get to see peripherally all sorts of interesting things that are going on in the New Zealand you know, research and development and innovation landscape. And quite honestly, there is world-class leading-edge stuff that gets done in this country by what is an ever-expanding pool of often already experienced entrepreneurs and founders and technologists. So there's quite an ecosystem um, that's built up over the years, but we could always do better, right? It's um, We need to be moving quickly the stuff. It's an internationally competitive landscape. And there's obviously this big war for talent going on at the moment. And so, you know, we, we need the people to build the businesses. Everyone else wants the people as well. Um, so it's an ongoing tussle, I guess. But uh, there, there is some really good stuff getting done in this country, quite seriously. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, now, getting on to uh, onto the international side of things, we, we've spoken a little bit about uh, things in, in Russia, Belarus and, and Ukraine over uh, recent months. One of the, th- the things that keeps coming through is the disruption to a lot of businesses who have uh, exited from Russia and, uh, and and Belarus. Last week, we, we talked a little bit uh, about Cloudflare who were staying in Russia, but our under- the understanding was uh, is so that allows a level of sort of freedom of international press uh, to actually reach Russian audiences. But I saw um, HP exiting, and it, it sounds like it's uh, something that will lead to sort of a billion-dollar hit in their uh, in their sales. So, yeah, it is quite a, uh, a, you know, a disruptor. But when you look at the size of the, the Russian market, sort of in, you know, in the scheme of it, it's yeah, generally a, a small percentages for most of these uh, global businesses. But whenever I think about this, just the scenario, could you imagine New Zealand not being able to get hold of current technology? Like, <laughs> yeah. what is this going to, to do to the Russian people over a, a longer period of, of time in terms of education and, and other aspects. Um, yeah, I see the importance of, uh, of doing everything that can be, that can be done, but you know, it makes me think, man, what, what must life be like in these countries where there are, you know, heavy, uh, heavy sanctions and you're running on uh, yep. very old technologies. What must it be like in North, North Korea, for instance? Um, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's kind of hard to imagine because things just move so so quickly from a technological standpoint, and uh, you know we just eat it up, we just go for it with with whatever the new technologies are, and it's kind of hard to imagine uh, you know being in in a place where you couldn't actually access all of that new technology. 
I find this quite interesting, right? So you, you look at companies like HP and that exiting, you know, they have to, right? It's, a, it's effectively a trade-off of revenue and against reputational impact, right? But there was an interesting story that uh, was published uh, a couple of days ago talking about Taiwan restricting CPUs to Russia and um, Belarus. And it's, it's an incredibly tight restriction. So they're not allowed to export CPUs that have greater than five gigaflop per second performance. The Sony PS2, the peak performance was 6.2 gigaflops. So how old's the Sony PS2, right? Not allowed to have a clock speed of 25 megahertz or higher. Data transfer rates of less than or equal to 2.5 megabits per second, which is pretty darn slow. And no packages with more than 144 pins, right? So, and there's a bunch of other things in there around gate propagation, delay times, and all sorts of other bits and pieces. But it's clear that, you know, I mean, that is going to absolutely cripple any sort of, um, you know, um, high tech business that's based in Russia. Obviously, it'll put a, a severe crimp in their developer of weaponry as well, which to me says there is a massive opportunity, and I'm sure it's underway already, of people smuggling those devices into Russia. That's exactly where they'll head. They're very small, they're high value, you can move millions of dollars with them in the boot of a car. So I'm sure that that's happening as we speak, right? I, th- I think this is going to be fascinating to look back on in a, in a few years' time or however long it uh, it takes to get through this this period of history and, you know, what does it lead to in terms of whether it's innovation and, uh, you know, in those lo- locations that are that are hit by these sorts of uh, sanctions. It sort of blow- blows my mind in a way to, uh, to, to think of it. But, yeah, it's happening and the legislation is there where, you know, companies like HP probably in most cases don't actually have a have a choice from a, a legal standpoint with what governments no. are putting in place, and and as you say, uh, you know Taiwan will be uh, will be caught up in that as well, and so you know the the list of, of companies is absolutely huge. And bearing in mind, you know a, a lot of these companies that are pulling out right now, particularly in the tech space, have you know no doubt massive massive interactions and contracts with you know the American government and its you know law enforcement agencies and military agencies and security agencies and things like that so so i i suspect in many ways foregoing a billion dollars in revenue out of russia was actually a five-minute decision at a board level right yeah, yeah. because the consequences of not doing so were substantial so no brainer yeah now um also on the front of U- ukraine we've heard about uh, starlink the satellite internet you know service from spacex the coming yeah, very quickly available in in Ukraine. I don't think it was available yep. uh, prior to the war. SpaceX and and Elon Musk have uh, have pushed that forward. I think U.S. government have, have probably you know funded a whole lot of these uh, satellites. But that has created a new scenario that probably most of us wouldn't have spent a whole lot of time thinking about, which is the situation where now you've got the likes of Russia, China, and others who are, are looking at what's happened with the satellite communication and uh, no doubt wondering whether they can put a stop to it. And so, <laughs> and we've seen little bits and pieces in, in recent years of one country or another uh, doing something that disrupts. And, and in fact, I think... Uh, SpaceX was even, you know, challenged about how, you know, how close some of the Starlink satellites got to uh, got to 
um, things that China were doing and and so on. So there, there's a, a real, um, you know, tussle starting in, in space as we go from having a relatively small number of satellites that are up there performing a variety of functions to where, you know, suddenly it's it's affordable for just about, you know, any any business to do something uh, in space if they're of a, of a reasonable uh, scale. And countries like uh, New Zealand that... Yeah, there was there wasn't there wasn't much that uh, uh, you know we had as a country in terms of in space. You would uh, uh, you know maybe have a, a slice of a satellite being used by the the likes of Sky and you know var- varying things uh, in place. But uh, where actually the number number of satellites uh, you know serving our little country uh, is growing and grow you know growing very very quickly. So I I'm uh, I'm kind of curious how how this whole thing will play out. It's another one of those areas where, <laughs> in some ways, I don't want to think about it at all. You know, what's the what's the impact if uh, if the the satellites that have that have gone up to deliver internet to uh, uh, to those in remote locations were to uh, were to get t- taken out by uh, an unfriendly party, <laughs> shall we say? actor yeah yeah look i think there's a whole lot of interesting things going on in here right so one is that whole um massive constellation of, of satellites that elon musk wants to put up there for for starlink uh which of course astronomers around the world are having conniptions about because of the damage to the night sky uh, i don't know if you've seen them going over but um and they have done some work to darken them but they um they certainly if you like taking long shots of of the cosmos that's not stuff, ideal not your friend yeah. No, it's not ideal. The number of satellites that are going to go up is astronomical. I can't remember exactly how many, but it's many thousands. Uh, and there are also other competitors looking at doing the same thing. You know, um, So it's, I believe the Chinese government are doing something uh, and there will be others as well, because obviously this shifts the tables from a, you know, if you're a Spark or a Vodafone or someone to have a satellite-based, um, low latency, um, high bandwidth connection kind of disrupts cell phone infrastructure and a whole lot of other things, right? So I think it's interesting from that perspective. And then there's the whole um, satellites as weapons thing, which obviously Russia's been experimenting with. I think um, they blew up a satellite in space um, a year or two back, um, which created a huge cloud of debris that's now being tracked. I'm sure that was no accident. And that's the stuff we're seeing, right? And of course, the stuff that we're seeing is only the you know, scratching of the surface, there'll be a whole lot of other stuff going on in space as well. Uh, the other thing too, of course, is that, you know, these people using these technologies in um, places like Ukraine, you know, they, they are UHF effectively radios, those things are trackable and traceable. And so, you know, um, there is a very real element of people putting themselves in danger if they're using these types of things, right? It's not difficult to triangulate a radio signal. So look, I think I think the whole thing's fascinating. I mean, when I first saw Starlink, it was one of those, oh my gosh, what an incredible visionary idea, you know, which is kind of what we've come to expect from Elon Musk. We can talk about Elon Musk later, but but when it comes to visionary ideas, he's he's pretty good at visionary ideas, right? He's a dick, but he's um he's he's pretty good with the visionary ideas. Um, that is a brilliant idea and incredibly disruptive, you know. So I think the benefits of of that can be substantial, but there are, without a doubt, some real downsides to it, particularly you know from that night sky perspective. But that's a lot of hardware to be sitting up there. Um, they can deorbit them. I'm not sure if you're aware, but yeah, two, yeah. two and a half thousand apparently at the moment. Deorbit them if they're damaged or if um, non-functional, so they can can actually take them out using an ion, I think a type of ion thruster, 
slow them down and drop them back into the atmosphere. Uh, and the other thing they're looking at doing too is uh, using lasers in space to communicate between between them, right? That's the next That's step. Right, yeah. So um, instead of bouncing signals back and forth around the globe, actually using laser to, to transmit um, up in space, which is absolutely incredible. So yeah, really interesting technology. I think what was interesting was just how fast they got them into Ukraine and what a difference it's made. And I'm sure Russia's very envious and they won't be able to do much if they're not getting CPUs that, or if they're getting PS2 level CPUs. I think that might they might need something a little bit better to go and build Starlink systems with. There's the two and a half thousand that are up there at the moment, and then the last few days we've heard, you know, uh, a little a little bit more uh, a reminder of the sort of next generation that we we knew were coming, uh, that are said to be four to five times bigger than the current generation that are uh, that are up there. So, yeah, talking about seven meters long, one point two tons a piece, and uh, that's going to require. The new rocket from uh, from SpaceX yep. because the the Falcon Nine, which has been uh, you know been sending them up and sort of I don't know hundred hundred and twenty or or uh, or so at a time, uh, isn't going to uh, to be able to handle this. So the um, the the Starship uh, is what's going to be required uh, to uh, yep. to go to that next level. And I guess the area where uh, Elon's businesses have done well as they seem to be able to iterate and iterate very, very quickly. And so yep. whilst the other players are, you know, still mostly sort of talking about putting their, their constellations up there and, you know, look, I know there's, there's a, there's a few other players with, with satellites up, but there's certainly nobody that is anywhere, you know, near the, Two and a half thousand that uh, that they're at. I think the other ones I've noticed uh, probably not even ten percent of the way. You know, there to to yeah. that sort of level of coverage, maybe maybe even one percent. So at a very different level. And here we are, and uh, they're getting ready to to launch a a whole new level of uh, of satellite. That that CubeSat um, stuff is quite amazing, right? I mean, that whole commoditization of democratization, commoditization of getting satellites in space is just gobsmacking the pace at which it's happened you know someone told me a while back that uh, because of rocket lab new zealand has uh, the highest ratio of uh, rocket scientists to the general population um in the world i don't know if that's true but i i tell australians that on it a sounds pretty so cool you know, I but it's true or not i know it's one of those stats you can pull off yeah. right you just look them in the eye and tell yeah them. But, but again, you know, um, Peter Beck, you know, a big part of his vision was the, the fact that these CubeSats, um, you know, are going to absolutely open up um, space to so many people and the relative cost of getting them up into space, you know, is, is just orders of magnitude lower than it used to be, which is really, really exciting. But man, there's a lot of tin floating around up there. So um, I hope there's enough space for it. It seems to be quite large. I don't know, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, coming, coming back to, uh, to New Zealand, I was invited up to uh, sail GP Technologies in, uh, in Walkworth last week and um, got to spend a, a, a bit of time with some of the team up there. And it, it was fascinating. Uh, Peter Burling and, and Blair uh, Tuk were up there. Yep. And, uh, and then sort of some of, the, some of the leadership. And look, I didn't really understand the full, the full story of exactly, you know, what had been happening up there. But w- my understanding is is that this base that uh, is now known as Sail GP uh, Technologies was 
uh, originally the I guess the the New Zealand research being being done uh, for Oracle Racing so that they could compete with New Zealand in the America's Cup. Kiwis have always been oh over you know certainly over over decades now uh, have been relied upon by um, you know by probably most teams there's been an element of of Kiwis uh, certainly if there's any winning winning going on. Uh, there's usually been been Kiwis involved, and um, so this had been the the base that Sir Sir Russell Coots and uh, the the Oracle team had been using. But w- what's changed is they've moved this from a internally focused uh, entity that was focused on just producing uh, technology to try and uh, you know beat Team New Zealand to an externally focused entity. And so we got to go through and, and see uh, some of the, the impressive uh, you know, tech that was, that was in there. And it was highlighted that Rocket Lab is now uh, one, of their, one of their customers. So you know, there, was, there was a space in there where you could imagine a, uh, uh, a rocket fuselage could be, uh, could be put together and uh, you know, all yep. sorts of things going on. And, yeah, we didn't get to see any of the, the confidential stuff like what they're doing with Rocket Lab. But, you know, and of course, they've, they've been experts, uh, you know, when we look at the America's Cups, uh, America's Cup teams, uh, you know, in working with, um, you know, with varying materials that cross over to, uh, with Rocket Lab in terms of the uh, carbon fiber technology. Carbon fiber, yeah. Um, so that, w- that was quite fascinating. And also some of the metals that they've they've worked with. Seeing all the different sort of tech and uh, machines and and so on was uh, was really interesting, uh, but now they're focused on uh, on very much sort of export opportunities and uh, serving a global audience. So yeah, really really great great to see uh, this change. And uh, yes, I'm sure it's uh, it's probably you know largely uh, just employing Kiwis rather than being a, a New Zealand entity because it, it does you know sit under under Oracle uh, Racing, but uh, it, it positions New Zealand in a in a good way, and there's an opportunity, I think, for them to work with all all sorts of sectors, well beyond the sailing world. So, yeah, I'll be quite fascinated to see, uh, you know, the sorts of things that they end up doing in the in the years ahead. If you think about, you know, what's what's happening in all of these spaces, right? There's some quite interesting kind of um, coming together of technologies. You know, so the, you know, I remember when I was at Air New Zealand, for example. So when did I leave Air New Zealand? Or early 90s, right? I was an aircraft engineer, and and carbon fiber technology was like at the bleeding edge of materials um, technology. It was difficult to use, and there weren't many experts, and people were still trying to figure it out. These days, you know, you can people can go and buy carbon fiber and do carbon fibery things for themselves. You know, you think about using titanium for 3D printing, or, or what's the other metal they use for the rocket engines, right? Once upon a time, 3D printing and metals was, was I'm going to say it anyway, rocket science. Yeah, yeah. And now, you know, there are numerous 3D metal printers, even here in little old New Zealand, right? Um, rocket Lab has a you know production line printing these things in bulk. Both of those technologies, all of those technologies were incredibly, you know, complex and expensive and, you know, high barriers to entry once upon a time. And now, you know, the avionics systems are all, available or you know people can build the stuff you know the the fact that we've got incredibly powerful computers that fit on something the size of a credit card is quite amazing so all of these this kind of all of these technologies coming to one point in space and time and you get you know the geniuses like peter beck uh like elon musk this is cotton socks 
um, who can see a future for these technologies, you know, that, that us mere mortals maybe sometimes don't. I mean, uh, Peter Beck just blows me away. You know, he's a guy that woke up one morning and hopped out of bed and thought he'd commoditize getting satellites into space, you know, I wake up and try and figure out where the coffee is. So, so people like that, true visionaries like that, just um, amaze me, right? And I think that's, that's what a lot of the leaders in the space, whether it's Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or, you know, Musk or Peter Beck or whatever, they have this amazing ability to look, to understand where tech is going, and particularly with exponential technologies, extrapolate out where something will be at a given time and kind of navigating towards that when everyone else thinks they're absolutely mad and crazy, right? Because, you know, how could you possibly build satellites for pennies on the dollar and launch them into space for, you know, pieces of pennies on a dollar, whereas they can see what the future looks like. Those are the, the real visionaries, yep, right? Yeah, The real crazies. And I should say, I'm not sure that I actually got conf- confirmation who the um, who the space customer was for sale GP technologies, but uh, that might have been me putting two and two together to say that it's uh, it's it's Rocket Lab. Um, so I'll That's just right. uh, just cover myself off there. But this is not investment <laughs> advice, and uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, there 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 were so many things there. There was this one um, room that was that was huge. I mean, it would fit a, an America's Cup yacht in it. So I don't know, fifty meters, seventy meters basically with this big machine that could that could shape all sorts of things um big step up from what they were using to the sort of metal type blades and you know multiple sort of you know four or four or was it five uh, axis and so on that they were putting things together with that would build things out of titanium and so on that might take i think one example was about over 200 hours to um to mill or to print yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. To mill. And yeah, it was interesting seeing stuff that they'd milled and they could go down to, you know, an absolute uh, fraction of a millimeter, like a, you know, I think hundredth of a millimeter or so. Uh, and then also yeah. seeing some stuff that had been had been 3D printed where they'd started with nothing and uh, and and built it up, which was less uh, detail, but uh, still an important part of the mix to be able to do that as well yep. so there, there seems to be you know looking at, at what they're doing a lot of opportunities from an environmental perspective and and looking at things that can really help the planet and that seemed to be the big interest for peter burling and and blair Chuk. so uh, yeah quite fascinating hearing about some of that stuff the way they were they're recycling certain uh, materials such as a carbon fiber and some yep. of the different approaches they're they're taking but it sounds like you know an incredible place to to learn and you know just for us to be able to grow more experts one of their challenges seems to be the challenge we're sort of seeing right you know right across the border tech sector in terms of getting access to the right people with the right skills so they're looking yep. to employ i think another 70 people but they just can't they can't find them at the moment so it's challenging times for every high tech company at the yeah. moment. You know, um, technical expertise and experiences in high demand and in short supply. Go and ask your manager for a pay rise now. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Won't be able to afford to employ anybody soon. Um, yeah, it's sort of you know, it, there's there is that challenge, isn't there, in terms of employing folks who we've, we've only got so much of a you know of a talent pool here Correct. Uh, at at the moment I, I don't know what the uh what the stats are but uh certainly hearing suggestions that uh, some folks that have come back to new zealand uh during covid times are uh, 
some of some of those folks no, not feeling like they want to uh, necessarily uh, stay here stay longer term. Yeah. So. Uh, and I think we're going to see more and more of that, right? I mean, it's interesting in the I know in the SaaS company um, sector at the moment here in New Zealand. You know, there are there's a lot of poaching going on um, from offshore. Um, there are com- uh, there are you know software developers leaving and heading across the Tasman and up into North America and earning considerably more you know on day one and there's an interesting phenomenon too where you get the the well-funded organizations can afford the higher salaries uh, those who aren't necessarily at the same stage in their journey or as well funded uh, therefore kind of get to choose from the b pool of talent and you kind of get this double whammy effect of you know some companies have got the a talent and other companies have the b talent uh, which kind of opens up um, something of a gap so there are a lot of challenges um, in that space and the talent space at the moment and and to be perfectly frank i think new zealand tech sector has never done a particularly good job of attracting people into the sector i did a presentation years ago at westlake girls high school and asked how many of the people there were looking at getting into the tech sector um, and a bunch of hands went up and then i asked how many of them were going to be accountants and it was about 5 each, so it's about burst into tears uh, <laughs> so you know it's not a sector that's done to date a particularly good job of attracting talent into it and i think we're really starting to see the the downside of that now, the impact of that now. Um, we need to do things better and smarter and faster, without yeah. a doubt. Don't get me started. Well, too late, you did. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> now, other things, um, there's a bit we can jump into a bit more on the sort of the space side. Tesla sort of, you know, caught some caught some attention while Elon, Elon Musk with his, his comments about a, you know, a return to work uh, situation, which I uh, I see some, uh, some companies keen to... Uh, uh, to take advantage of, I saw uh, Atlassian putting putting some things uh, out there saying, "Hey, if you want to leave Tesla and work yeah. remotely, then uh, then then come and work for us." Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating scenario. And I, look, you know, from an outside perspective, you know, you only see certain certain bits and pieces. But one of the things that I'm hearing more and more is from organisations who are really uh, appreciating the uh, the 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 move back. Oh, we have a bit of, bit of, bit of a fire alarm going on here. Uh, we may have to wrap up, um, and we'll come come back on these uh, topics a little bit later. Good to see you. I'll see you when I yeah, see you. Thanks, Brett. Safe travels. Cheers. Bye. Hello, Brett. Uh, welcome back for part two of the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Uh, that one's a, a bit of a turn up for the books after. I don't know what we're at, 580 episodes. We uh, have, I think this is the first one that's been interrupted by a, um, uh, a, a false alarm on uh, the building burning down. I'm pleased to see you survived. That's good. Yeah, thanks. Um, right, so we were about to sort of d- delve into sort of this uh, situation where uh, an internal communication from Musk to his uh, his people at Tesla basically saying, look, you know, Get get back to the office for at least forty hours a week, or uh, or, or or get stuffed unless you're one of a a, a chosen select uh, few. And uh, yeah, I guess this sort of crosses over with with discussions that I've been having recently uh, with you know range of folks who have been talking about just uh, the value of getting getting people back together in in person. But how at odds it seems to be with uh, most of certainly the the technology world, where we're not expecting to have staff back in the office for forty hours 
uh, 40 hours a week that we're expecting a, a, a level of flexibility now. And trying to get my head around this, I thought, well, I guess if if you're you know, a manager of a manufacturing team, which is a, a pretty big part of what Tesla do, then, yeah, sitting at the end of a computer while your uh, manufacturing staff are, are running around a factory, uh, I can see that probably not necessarily uh, playing out so well if you're at the top of the stack and you're expecting to direct people from from afar. That was the bit that I could I could understand. But what are, what are your thoughts? Do you, do you think uh, they're going to make this uh, work, or could they be losing a lot of people at Tesla? I, look, I don't know. I, I think the world's turned right. Um, a lot's changed over the last couple of years, and I think. COVID had a, a, played a very big part in that as a fast forward mechanism. I think we've always been heading towards a world where potentially at some stage, a lot of people start to question why they hop in a car and spend an hour and a half in each direction, morning and night, going to a cubicle farm somewhere to do something that they could quite happily do in their back bedroom or on the dining room table, right? So I can absolutely see in, for companies like Tesla, where, you know, it is a manufacturing facility, right? You know, or manufacturing company, um, it's pretty hard to... Geez, I don't know, make batteries on your dining room table or, you know, <laughs> assemble electric motors on your dining room table. You, you need to be at a place and that's that's a pretty standard uh, model of work. It will be interesting to see for those people who for te- at Tesla who don't necessarily have to be at work, you know, knowledge workers, for example, how they take to that. You know, Elon Musk does not have a particularly good track record when it comes to um, caring and feeding for his for his staff, he's you know he's got all sorts of interesting health and safety issues going on at one of the plants, I think in California, isn't it? You know they've got issues with rampant racism in some places and other things. So I'm not sure that he's someone that builds the most incredible work cultures, but he has an amazing knack of hiring incredible people, and I don't think there's any doubt about that to to drive those businesses for him. So look, I I think you know the Tesla culture is clearly one of you know good old working more than 40 hours a week and all that sort of thing. I, I'm sure a lot of people. Will, thrive up with with that um but i think a lot of companies that might want to follow suit might want to just sit down and have a very careful think before doing so i think if you're you know early on in your career it makes sense to be in the office you know those that are seen uh will be known and, and understood and promoted i think that's a fairly safe bet uh, i know a lot of people that would happily never go near an office again um which I think is interesting, which is not to say they don't like getting in front of customers and making sales calls and doing all those other things. They just don't see any point sitting in an office anymore. Um, I think it's probably changed the face of international uh, and domestic air travel. I think that's a fairly safe bet as well. It'll be interesting to see how this whole thing plays out. There's a really good guy on Twitter, Chris Hurd. Um, his Twitter handle is Chris underscore Hurd, H-E-R-D, uh, who's a bit of a guru on, um, on, on the whole, um, you know, remote work i guess um thing and has a startup company based around it providing hardware for people that are remote workers um but he tweets some very interesting stuff and some quite interesting um kind of you know surveys that he's done um and some of the results are quite fascinating in some parts of the world you know huge numbers 80 percent of people have no intention of ever returning to the office obviously it'll all depend how, how the what looks to be a recession plays out um, but you know we are in the tech world in an absolute war for a battle for talent and i think those companies that might want to demand people spend their 37 and a half or 40 hours or whatever it is in a building downtown might struggle that would be my guess so i think yeah i don't know i I think for some organizations this is going to work particularly if you have to go and work at a machine like the people in the tesla factories do 
I think for those people whose main tool of trade is a laptop. Yes, I I think it's going to be a time, you know, particularly the next six to twelve months of of navigating what works, and it's probably going to vary a lot from one organisation to another. And you know, there are a lot of factors. Of course, we've got organisations that have been around for many years that have been entirely remote workforce yep. and then yeah you've got you know situations like this and we've seen it with apple and uh, and others where there's a push to come back to the office although not to uh, this sort of a, a extreme where it's uh, you know full full time in the office uh, you know quite as much with these bigger uh, tech players so I will be I'll be watching this one with uh, with interest and yeah there, there's I mean there's so many facets you could sort of go into in terms of you know the the benefits of being together face to face the things that you the way communication works when you you know when you see people when you're with folk face to face then you know we've got these variations on re- remote work where some folks uh, just want to work remotely but they also don't want to turn the camera on. Uh, and there, the, you know, there's yeah, a level of yep. sort of nuance there that you leave in a, that you lose in a communication if you can't see the expressions yep, and body language that that goes with it. So yeah, it, it, it is uh, it's a bit of a journey. And then there's some organisations that are you know demanding if you're working remotely, you must be seen all the time. I, I guess you know my, my approach with my team is is to say, look, let, you know, let's consider those other communication aspects of being able to see those expressions and see me waving my arms around or whatever whatever it is and and see how you respond and whether you whether you're, you're laughing or not rather than just uh, just an emoji yeah i you yeah. know but i think that there's room for, for for lots of you know lots of different uh, you know scenarios and look if you're at the real pointy end of of innovation working in the audio auto industry space and you know some other areas, then um, yeah, maybe the way that plays out is uh, that you, or, or certainly for certain roles, that a bunch of people have to be there in person to get the right sort of pace yep. and to get the right sort of uh, results. But I don't know for sure. Creativity and innovation thrives in an environment where you get people together. Um, having said that, I've, I've over the last couple of years been involved in all sorts of interesting conversations. You know, online conversations where we've used a tool like Miro, for example and got some really, really good work done. And in fact, sometimes in a more structured manner than we might if everyone had been in a room sticking post-it notes on the wall, right? So I think part of it is a, is a discipline piece, you know, using the tools properly, discipline part of it. There's absolutely a cultural piece in there, um, setting expect, you know, what is expected and what's not. But there's all sorts of interesting phenomena cropping up out of this. I've read two quite appear to be very real stories of people. One was in the US, I'm not sure where the other one was, um, software developers who have gone and got themselves a second full-time job and are earning an absolute fortune working for two companies simultaneously because neither employment contract mentioned that they can only work for one company. So they're not breaking any rules. They're putting the hours in and doing all the work. Uh, they're obviously doing it all remotely and, and earning good money as a direct result. Right. So, so it, there's an interesting question. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. It's probably just a thing. But it's, um, <laughs> So I think there is absolutely a synergy and energy that comes from getting people in a room. I, you know, that's just a given. But by the same measure, I think a lot of, you know, that classic thing of couldn't have this meeting been an email. I think that's always been an issue within within business. And I think people have gotten a lot better over the last couple of years at running online meetings 
um, in, a, in a structured manner. We, we use um, at Callahan Innovation, we use Google Meet. And, you know, we'll often just have a quick chat with someone back and forth. They'll flick you a link to a video call. You'll jump on the video call, sort the thing out in 10 minutes, jump off the call again, and then someone else will do the same thing. And, and you know, I spend probably at times half of my day on video calls with people back and forth. And it works. It actually works really, really well. But, you know, we're not standing beside large metal presses making electric cars. So it's it's a different different environment, right? But, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I think certainly in the tech sector, particularly in the software development field, where, you know, you can work from a mountain in Tibet if you want, you know, uh, companies really need to think through whether they want to force that kind of stuff on people that don't want to do it. You know, is it better to have hugely talented software developer who refuses to come into an office working from home all the time? Or would you rather that you implement everyone must be in the office and they choose to leave, right? It's important to make good decisions. Agreed. In that sort of situation. A lot of trade-offs, yeah. right? And there's that whole aspect of whatever you want to call it, deep work and uh, you know, having your own space where you can just think and and, yeah. and work, whether you you know, whether it's coding or or other other areas where spending a, a good chunk of time remote and away from other people can really help facilitate that. Just on that, the other thing that's interesting in the space, right, is that so much of our thinking about work comes from the Industrial Revolution, right? Oh, you know, I, I have to stand beside a loom to make X metres of fabric a day. If I need twice as many metres of fabric, I either need two looms, or I need two people to stand next to looms or whatever it might be. So much of it is archaic, antiquated thinking, but we keep dragging it. We've been dragging it now for, what, a couple hundred years, I guess, or 150 years. Um, it probably is time for a rethink around some of that stuff, what constitutes work. But we are still very firmly wedded to this whole idea of a certain number of hours per week for a certain value output, right? And I think a lot of those connections between those two things are breaking and, and have been broken a bit more quickly due to COVID. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, you you're spot on. And yeah, we will uh, we will see this continue to to evolve. Now, space. There is just so much going on as far as uh, space at the moment. Uh, Blue Origin just had their, I think it was fifth uh, tourist trip up to the uh, edge of space. This is a, a company, Jeff Bezos uh, company, you know, working towards uh, space tourism for, for a long time. But now that it started, it seems to be really, uh, you know, it's, ramp, it's ramped up, you know, fairly quickly. And I know that Blue Origin uh, have, have very much sort of tried to compete with SpaceX and haven't always come off so well. But we are moving into a time where it's become so, so much easier. And, you know, of course, SpaceX and Blue Origin and, you know, others such as, as Rocket Lab have put in uh, a lot of energy to get to the place we're at now. Uh, but it seems as though things are, are really speeding up quite quickly. China has been in the in the news the last few days, uh, putting another a, a rocket up in terms of their work for building their new uh, space station, Tiangong, uh, or Heavenly Palace, as it's known. It's quite catchy. I like. Yeah, it. yeah, kind of cool. And look, it, it looks like a, a you know a pretty impressive uh, space station that uh, that they've got coming together. Who knows what will happen to the the ISS, the International Space Station, with with current uh, things going on between um, uh, Russia and the rest of the uh, planet, it's still the US that's putting in the the biggest amount of uh, of money into uh, into into space. But it's just fascinating seeing 
all of these things going going on. And looking back a year ago, space tourism was at the extremities. There were a few, you know, a few folks that would get a ride from from the Russians at uh, at great expense. But now those prices are uh, are really coming down. And you know, the things that uh, we've, I guess, have been talked about for so many decades are now kind of on this this technology innovation curve that you know that we all know about starts out expensive and uh, yep. and then the prices come down and it gets more and more accessible to uh, a broader range of of people i find it to be incredible the um, the pace that things are are now moving about and obviously we talked about satellites and so on earlier on in the in the show but uh I don't know. Have you got any any views on where we're going to be in in a decade or or two? Now that we we've, we've got this pace going, that <laughs> it's not going to slow down, is it? No. So so no, it's not. I think there's a few interesting things going on in here. Watching, you know, Musk, Peter Beck, Branson, um, Bezos compete in this space is quite fascinating. So it's you know the amount of innovation that's going on in this domain is absolutely massive. Uh, a contest of egos, without a doubt, certainly between <laughs> three of those. I'm not sure what Peter Beck is like, but the others in there are certainly not known for having uh, minor league egos. Rocket-based international travel, I've seen articles about that over the years, about this, it really doesn't make too much financial sense, I suspect, to just send people up for a, an hour or two into space for doing a couple of orbits and a bit of weightlessness and all that sort of thing. Obviously, there's some people can afford that, 99.999% of the population can't. But the idea of international travel via rocket is very interesting. And I'm sure that that underpins some of what's going on in this space, right, without a doubt. But but you're right. You know, if you, if you look at what's happened 10 years ago, this was just science fiction, absolute science fiction. Um, and now if you've got a big enough checkbook, you can write a check and go to space. So, you know, that's happened in an incredibly short period of time. 10 years out, I have no idea where, where we'll be at other than the rockets will be more reliable probably just as polluting, I'm not sure. And, you know, maybe there will be people traveling around the world, vast distances and incredibly quick periods of time. Of course, this all is predicated on the fact that none of them crash and burn. What's that Elon Musk quote about he wants to die on Mars, just not on landing or not on re-entry or whatever it is. You know, I, so that, that might set things back. But, you know, what you're looking at here is effectively the same journey of, you know, from, from the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk through to the you know, 747 kind of thing was, you know, how many years was that? 50, 60 years? It wasn't that long. Um, you know, we're building things faster, better. We have new manufacturing techniques now. You know, where are we going to be 10 years down the track? God, I hate to think, or I'd love to think it'll be, it will be quite incredible without a doubt. I remain to be convinced we should all be heading to Mars. But Yeah, yeah, I'm probably but, yeah. with you on that. But, you know, it seems like, <laughs> you know, China are lining up, you know, heading to the, you know, sending people to the moon. Uh, Mars is certainly on uh, on their plans. Uh, Musk is sort of still talking of that that Mars could be, you know, as soon as 2025 from uh, from a SpaceX uh, perspective. But it is there is something glorious, and I you know I don't I don't know if you you saw the videos of um, the latest Blue Origin mission, but uh, it does look pretty spectacular. Uh, seeing you know seeing the rocket come down again. Uh, and then also, uh, you know, seeing the, um, um, you know, the, the 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 rest of it, the um, um, stage with the passengers in it, uh, you know, come come down to earth on Capsule, its, uh, yeah. yeah, on on its, uh, you know, uh, parachute, parachute sort of thing, and amid some yeah. uh, some dust. 
the biggest problem Blue Origin have is is clearly what their rocket looks like, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, you know, who, whoever was the designer that convinced Bezos that we should make this rocket and it needs to look like a giant penis, mate, I think was absolute evil genius. That was some <laughs> great piece of work. Yeah, it's pretty hilarious, isn't it? Um, there were a couple of more things I was hoping to speak about, but I think we've we've run out of time. We will we'll come back to them. Uh, want to delve into uh, Vocus and and two degree merger having, you know, I guess we could say it's it's fully completed now because uh, you know the Vocus uh, team have been uh, uh, moved into uh, two degrees uh, headquarters and uh, had a chance to. Um, to hear from them on uh, on that last week, um, so we will we'll look forward to uh, delving in a bit more. What does this actually mean for New Zealand uh, telecommunications? Uh, but it had a great um, uh, chat um, with yeah. There was a bunch of uh, uh, media and folks uh, hearing from uh, Mark Callender, who has uh, you know moved across uh, from heading up uh, Vocus to uh, heading up the the new combined. Uh, entity of uh, of of two degrees, so we'll look to plan something in in the the weeks ahead on that one. I think the one of the one of the headline pieces of news there was that they will be uh, changing from being a whole raft of sort of challenger brands to uh, to being a combined uh, brand overall. So uh, we'll be seeing the end of uh, Orcon and Slingshot, and so on, uh, and it will all be uh, two degrees. I think Two Talk was the uh, one of, if not the only uh, uh, brand that's uh, maybe going to going to stay separate from uh, uh, from that, but yeah, quite a a big point in New Zealand's telecommunication history. It is. It's a very big deal. Yeah. So, you know, not just numerically, but um, shaking up the marketplace perspective. Um, in two degrees, I, I really I don't know a lot about Vocus, but I know two degrees have played that challenger role extremely well in the past, right? So. Um, interesting how it all plays yeah, out right yeah no look i you know i think uh you know i think both both entities very well and um you know in their in their own uh ways uh the interesting thing will be to see whether they manage to sort of carve out uh, more of the business market and uh certainly from yep. a, from a mobile perspective uh you know two degrees hasn't uh you know hasn't hasn't tended to be a big big player uh, but now, when you when you look at you know some of the some of the data and so on, uh, it seems like they've got. Uh, I think they talk about a ninety eight point five percent of the population uh, being covered by their network. Uh, doesn't doesn't really sound too much different uh, to to the others. So uh, um, yeah, fascinating things ahead. Now we also didn't get time to delve into um, all of Apple's news from <laughs> this yeah. morning. Of which there is an absolute uh, load online. Look, I, I just feel in, encouraged that Apple continuing to compete and innovate. There's some really, really cool, mostly little things, but uh, you know that's what technology innovation is. You know, is about in most cases, isn't it? Is that continuous improvement and not uh, uh, not staying the same? Um, very interesting that's to it. see that footage of uh, Apple CarPlay sort of taking over all the screens in, uh, in new vehicles, apparently from late next year. And you know, if we look at the new electric vehicles that are, that are coming out, they're, uh, uh, they, they look pretty slick with all of the, uh, all of the digital uh, displays. And uh, I can imagine that there'll be a few folks at Apple sort of salivating over this idea that uh, what's going to be on those screens in the, in the latest uh, 
the latest electric vehicles will uh, will be all Apple. I think the electric vehicles will be Apple at some point, right? I mean, that, yeah. I think that's yeah. pretty. That's definitely, you know, I was listening to a podcast here, um, Scott Galloway, Professor Scott Galloway, yes. um, talking a while back, um, and, and his take on it was that, you know, it's all about um, FaceTime screen time, That that's where the, um, you know, these massive company valuations come from, whether it's Facebook or whoever, and Apple can't afford not to be in that market, and so, you know, I'm sure, you know, they will invade um, the screens of other manufacturers, but, you know, I'd be very surprised if we don't see at some point Apple producing their own um, vehicles. The other thing I think that might not have come out at the Apple event this year, but will next year is around their augmented reality investments. You know, they've got a ton of patents in that space. There's, they've hired a, a bunch of, you know, what appear to be incredibly talented people. Um, this is a company that knows how to build consumer electronics, right? It's probably the, the best company on the planet at innovating and building this stuff. Um, I'm really looking forward to see um, what they do. If there's someone that can really shake that market up, you know, Microsoft are doing some pretty clever stuff. I think the Meta thing is still a work in progress. But yeah, watching what Apple um, bring to bear in this market, I think is going to be really interesting. Robert Scoble, just as an aside, is doing some quite interesting analysis of some of this stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I've uh, been on some chats with him and. Uh... Yeah, I think he he certainly seems to be in the um in the camp that's sort of salivating over uh yeah yeah over, he's definitely uh, a fanboy over but, what's yeah, coming yeah. in those regards, yeah. but you know we know that Apple uh, will often sort of sit back until they've got something that uh, that really works, and if they maybe they don't find something that uh, that really delivers, then um, you know that maybe they won't actually end up releasing something, but uh, it uh, it seems as though there's there's some room there there's uh, there's a bit of a a gap, but it, it is, I guess, this whole sort of, you know, virtual reality uh, area is like others in that, yeah, we don't seem to have quite landed in terms of, uh, you know, how how the, the technology becomes relevant to a, a really big uh, mass market. Look, I think the, the challenge at the moment is no one wants to look like a dick wearing, you know, <laughs> a tissue box on their face. I mean, that's, that is a challenge. And um, at the moment, that's the only form factor they can squeeze the, you know, the the screens and the lenses and the tracking mechanisms and all the other stuff into. I, I'm sure at some stage, someone, potentially Apple, will figure out how to do that stuff smaller. But, you know, I just do not foresee a world where we'll, you know, great for gaming and some other things like that. But a lot of that stuff is still a problem looking for, a, uh, sorry, a, a solution looking for a problem. And until they figure out the form factor, I I can't see that moving ahead, break breaking into the mainstream. I think that's a that's a real challenge. Look, even even you walk into Noel Lemmings and places like that, and people are trying them on, and they, you can tell they're embarrassed there, you know. So, <laughs> so yeah. we'll see. Yeah, interesting stuff happening. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, no, there there, there is, and a uh, number of new things uh, coming through when it comes to uh, virtual reality and uh, and and glasses. I think uh, I saw something about you know Amazon have got their uh, Alexa type of glasses as as well. So there's a lot going on, but nothing that really seems to uh, seems to hit the mark. So probably one of those things that's on a on a slow burn. Yeah, yeah, I think it'll be a slow, and, and you were talking earlier, and I think you made a really good point. A lot of this innovation stuff is slow burn. It's just consistent, you know, innovating, kind of just, it's a process of innovation with the occasional, oh my God, kind of moments, right? You know, and, and the, the launch of the iPhone was one of those moments, right? Where everyone just sat up and went, you know, wow. 
Um, so if anybody can pull a rabbit out of this particular hat, it's definitely Apple. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting just to see what they need to do and what the form factor is going to be, et cetera, um, to make it compelling for people, right? Yep, uh, I think it's uh, it's an, ex an exciting time, um, e even though we're maybe not, uh, it doesn't feel like we're, we're at those sort of steep innovation curves we've, we've maybe have had at, uh, at other points. So I think it is worth watching closely all the little bits and pieces that are that are yep. going on that actually add Correct. up to some pretty big things over you know, a reasonably short space of time. So uh, well worth having a look, having a look at the um, you know some of the Apple news, particularly if you uh, you know if you're deep in the uh, the Apple ecosystem. Some of the nice things that they're uh, that they're baking in there uh, looks uh, looks great. So it might yeah might not be earth shattering, but uh, you know bring, bring it all together and their their ecosystem Correct. is uh, is just getting. Slowly but surely, richer and richer, and uh, I can imagine their their share price uh, is is probably going to uh, um, you know be be at a at a at a fairly extreme scale uh, you know in the next five or ten years if they can uh, they can you know just keep doing the same sort of stuff as they're doing, but you know bringing in a few of those big hits uh, like we talked about. Agreed. Maybe it's the the vehicles and. Uh, uh, well, and, they're, and they're making their own the, silicon uh, now, right? And I think yeah, that's that's yeah. a big deal, right? So they're manufacturing their own chips now, and I think, um, you know, Tim Cook, it's a genius company full of geniuses doing genius things, right? And and um, you know, maybe the first iterations of things might not be might not hit the mark, but but they've got deep, probably the deepest R and D pockets on the planet, certainly some of the deepest. Um, they'll nail it without a doubt. If anyone can, they will. Um, and, and I think the fact that they are building their own silicon now is very, very interesting. I think all of a sudden that heads them in a direction that they have a lot more control um, and gives them that opportunity to potentially pull a rabbit out of the hat that scares the you know proverbial out of um, their competitors. So yeah. Yeah. Well, it was it was only a, you know a, a short number of years ago that uh, we'd be talking about Apple and and just how. How poorly they were treating their uh, their Mac users, and you know, in particular, it'd be years yeah. between uh, you know releases of certain Macs. It was a Mac Mini or you know Mac Pro, and so on. And uh, you know, you you were really getting um, you know ill treated in many ways if you were you know a professional <laughs> organization right. buying Macs uh, yep. because they would release a product and then maybe not replace it for you know five or six years. And yep. in the interim, the price didn't come down to reflect the fact that it was out of step with the rest of the industry. Generally, the price would would stay the same, or or maybe only move a little bit. Um, but now, as you say, with uh, with producing their own chips, their own silicon, uh, you know, we're 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 now suddenly in this point where they're they're innovating at, at pace with certainly a you know a fairly broad you know spectrum of uh, of max so uh, i'm i'm kind of curious how that will that will play out and the integration now that they're getting across the you know the various parts of that ecosystem you know yep. one of the things they announced today was that you can now use your iphone which has immensely better cameras than any webcam that uh, you know that that exists right in general unless you're talking about a high end video conferencing system and even there i'd probably It'd be open to debate with the sort of yep, the, exactly. the time you add yep. in their silicon, and the fact that basically now you can start, you can mount that uh, that that iPhone with its uh, um, superb cameras and make that your webcam. It's it's just uh, another small innovation, but actually 
uh, you know, puts them in a very, very uh, nice position or, or certainly puts their, their users in a nice position uh, for folks that want that um, that higher, higher end result for, you know, broadcast and other sorts of things. Yep. All right. Yep, well, thank amazing you. Amazing stuff. Thank you, Brett. Uh, it's been great to great to catch up. Uh, sorry about the little uh, interruption there. With uh, I'm uh, pleased you made it, mate. The building, <laughs> fortunately, not being on uh, not being on fire. Uh, hopefully, that's uh, that's a one always a good thing. One off for uh, for the show. Uh, go go well. Cool, man. Thanks for having me. All, always fun. If people want to find me, I'm Brett Roberts on Twitter. Find me on LinkedIn. Um, and thanks again, Paul. Love these chats. You know I do. Excellent. Thanks, Brett. And uh, yeah, folks, uh, definitely go and go and uh, seek out Brett, follow him on uh, on Twitter uh, or on LinkedIn and uh, to keep up with, with what he's doing. Uh, and you can, of course, find uh, myself, Paul Spain and NZ Tech Podcast across uh, most of the, the social channels and uh, the, these uh, episodes, which are, we know they're mostly listened to through uh, you know, the, the main podcast apps or any podcast app. Uh, but you can also find uh, live streams as we've streamed today across uh, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and uh, and YouTube, I believe. Uh, so if you want to, you know, catch the news a little bit quicker, uh, feel free to follow us on on those channels and to join us live. All right, thanks very much. Thanks, Brett. Thanks everyone thanks, for listening in. We'll cool. catch you again next week. See you later. Bye bye. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.